We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson Preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi And now, Mike Hickson Many years ago, somebody coined the phrase, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And there are times in life when, quite frankly, people will not treat us like we want to be treated. So the question is, how do we react? Sometimes, rather than meeting the problem head on and trying to reconcile and forgive, we harbor grudges. And we allow resentment and anger to flood our soul and rob us of the peace that passes all understanding. And Paul, in the book of Ephesians, if you look at this book by way of overview, the first three chapters, Paul, in a very specific way, deals with the redemptive plan that has been made available to us through Christ. He talks about our redemption in Christ, our reconciliation in Christ, and then in chapters 4 through 6, he deals with our relationship to Christ and our responsibilities. And some of the responsibilities that we have in Christ, some pack what we would call a great punch. And so in Ephesians 4, 31, Paul said, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. I want to begin tonight by asking the question, why should we forgive? Our first point, we're going to talk about the catalyst behind forgiveness. Are there some motivating factors that ought to lead us to the demonstration of a forgiving spirit? And I think that we would answer that in the positive, yes. As I thought about this lesson, there are really some positives and negatives when we talk about the catalyst for forgiveness. First, I want to deal with the positives. There's some positive reasons why we ought to be motivated to forgive. Reason number one, the blessings of God's grace. Listen, if you would, again to what Paul said in verse 32, the latter part. Well, look at verse 31 in its entirety. He said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. One of the reasons we ought to be willing to forgive others is because we are forgiven people. You think about how God has lavished upon us the riches of His grace and kindness. Do you remember what Paul said in Ephesians 1-7? When he wrote, In Him that is in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. God through Christ has forgiven us. And you think about all of the things that we have said and done in life, thereby necessitating God's forgiveness. We think about the blessings of God's grace. In Ephesians 2, 4, Paul said, But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ. He said, By grace you've been saved. 
So when we respond to the gospel in an obedient manner, we enjoy the forgiveness of sins, don't we? So you think about one reason why we ought to be willing to forgive others is because God has forgiven us. Because of His matchless, marvelous grace. There is a second reason why I believe we ought to be willing to forgive others. First, because of the blessings of God's grace. Secondly, because of the blessings of godly gain. Paul here is saying that we ought to lay aside characteristics that would lead to bitterness and anger and wrath and loud quarreling and evil speaking. And that we ought to be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus discussed the possibility of someone wronging us? And in a very specific and candid way, He talks about how we are to reconcile with our brother. In Matthew 18 verse 15, Jesus said, Moreover, if your brother trespass against you, here's what He said, If he trespasses against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him, listen to him, alone. He didn't say that publicly you're supposed to deal with someone who has offended you initially. You're not to get on Facebook and blast this individual. You're not to send out massive text to all your friends and all your family members and talk about how bad so-and-so is and what they've done to you. No, he said, listen, rather than publicly dealing with this, initially, here's what you do. You go to that brother and you define what he or she has done. You tell him his or her fault alone. And then Jesus said, if he hears you, what? He said, you have gained your brother. And the idea is, here's, here's a situation where two people have butted heads. Somebody has, a, has been offended. Somebody has been wronged. And so the innocent goes to the person that has wronged him or her, thereby telling this individual the problem. And hopefully and prayerfully this person will say, you know what, I was in the wrong. Would you forgive me? And if they ask to be forgiven, what are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus said that our forgiveness is contingent on our willingness to forgive others, isn't it? Matthew chapter 6, 14 and 15. If we forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, our Heavenly Father will forgive us our trespasses. But if we do not forgive men their trespasses against us, our Heavenly Father will not forgive us. But in Matthew 18, Jesus is simply saying, look, there are times when we have strained relations. Somebody does us wrong, and so we go to that person, we try to reconcile those differences, and when reconciliation has come about, what happens? We've gained that brother back. We're back in harmony. We're back in fellowship with one another. So those are two positives, but then there are some negatives. And I want to begin by, first of all, talking about the danger of bitter grudges. Now listen again to what Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Let me just very quickly mention a couple of terms here. The word for anger here carries with it the idea of violent emotions. Sometimes people have a, as we would say, sometimes people are quick-tempered, aren't they? 
And there are occasions in life when somebody will get mad. They will, as we say, fly off the handle. They'll say what they want to say. They'll do what they want to do. And then that anger begins to subside. And then the flip side of that is there are those who become angry. And rather than that anger reaching a boiling point and then subsiding, it begins to grow and to fester. And over a period of time, there is a lot of resentment, a lot of anger, a lot of ill will. And ultimately, it can lead, in the final sense of the word, to murder. And so what Paul is saying here is, as a child of God, you need to learn to let it go. And so the words anger and wrath, two distinct words, two separate meanings here. He talks about evil speaking, somebody that would use slanderous speech, hurting the reputation of another person. In other words, hurting their good name. The word clamor denotes loud quarreling. And Paul is simply saying, look, you're a child of God. You remember in chapter 4, he discusses putting off that old man and putting on the new man. When we become a Christian, there are things that maybe we used to do in our past life as an unbeliever that now in Christ are not to be characteristic of us. He talks about in verse 22, putting off concerning our former conduct. In verse 23, being renewed in the spirit of our mind. And so there's a change, a contrast. But think with me for a moment about the danger of bitter grudges. Why, why do you think we ought to resolve our differences and forgive? When we fail to forgive, number one, it disgraces the Savior. You ever thought about that? Paul is simply saying, look, as a child of God, you need to learn to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We are God's people. If anybody ought to be willing to forgive, then we ought to be the people, shouldn't we? You agree with that? So when we don't forgive, what does that say about our relationship to God? You think about how much the Lord has forgiven us. And then add to that His grace and mercy and compassion. His willingness to forgive. And we're going to harbor a grudge. And we're going to carry in resentment in our heart. We're going to have an axe to grind with brother, sister, so-and-so because we don't like what they did to us. Paul's saying, no, no, no. That's not how we're to act. Well, why? Because it disgraces the Savior. Again, thinking about what God through Christ has done for us. There's a second reason. First, it disgraces the Savior. Secondly, it discourages the saints. The church is the ecclesia, the community of the saved. And there is the church universally and the church locally. Locally, we have to learn to get along with one another, don't we? When people get sideways with one another and there are conflicts that arise, and listen, we're human beings. We are imperfect people. There is the perfect side of the church and the imperfect side of the church. The divine side is perfect. That would be God's side. The imperfect side would be the people. That's us. And so when we talk about forgiveness, we need to understand that when we have problems with one another and we refuse to resolve those problems when we refuse to meet those problems head on what happens it can be discouraging can't it not only can it be discouraging but it can be divisive and there are times when what happens is people begin politicizing what's happened and then you have lines drawn in the sand 
And you've got some people in the church, they're taking this side, others are taking that side. And what happens to the unity and the harmony of the church? It's out the window. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what Paul said. Again, writing to Christians, he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. In other words, I encourage you, I exhort you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness or humility and gentleness, meekness, strength under control. With long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. The word forbearing means to bear with. As God's people, do we have to be long-suffering toward one another? Yes. We have to suffer with some people. Why? Because they're not, they don't always do things the way we think they ought to be done. We are human beings. We are imperfect people. And we make up the church. And so in light of that, here's what Paul said, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When peace pervades within the body of Christ, then God is glorified, isn't He? When trouble arises and brothers and sisters are at odds with one another, what happens? Division and discouragement. There's a third reason why we ought to forgive. We're talking about bitter grudges. The third reason is because it drives away sinners. Did you know one of the greatest crutches people in the world have is hypocrisy? I'm not saying it's a valid argument, but I do know that there are people in the world that use hypocrisy as a crutch for why they don't want to be a member of the church, for why they don't want to be a child of God, a Christian. Because they say, look, if you people who claim to be Christians, if you can't get along with one another, why do I want to be a part of your body? Why would I want to be a part of your group? And so it ultimately can drive away sinners. You remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 when he was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, he delivered a series of woes to those people. And he said, they say and do not. They say one thing, they do another. Sometimes in the church we have that problem, don't we? We preach one thing, we practice another. And what Paul is saying is our practice needs to harmonize with our profession. What we say needs to equate to what we do. So, bitter grudges. When we harbor bitter grudges, the danger, number one, it disgraces the Savior. Number two, it discourages saints. Number three, it drives away sinners. And number four, it delights Satan, doesn't it? You know who the real winner is when problems arise? And feuds escalate within the body, and the church is divided and broken. Do you know who wins ultimately? The devil does. The devil. The devil wants to destroy the body of Christ. He wants to destroy Christians. Do you think he cares how he accomplishes that? He doesn't care. Sometimes we talk about the devil's toolbox and all these tools. He has this arsenal of weapons at his disposal. And so he doesn't really... He doesn't really care how he gets his foot in the door. He just wants to get his foot in the door. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 27. Neither give place or opportunity to the devil. If you have a conflict with somebody, if someone has wronged you and you have not reconciled that, you are giving place or opportunity to the devil. What you're doing, you're allowing him to get a foothold in your life. And if he gets in your life, then that means he's in the church. And if he's in the church, what's he going to do to the peace, the harmony, and the serenity of the church? He's going to tear 
to pieces, isn't he? So, positives and negatives. By way of negatives, first, the danger of bitter grudges, and then secondly, the danger associated with the burdens of guilt. There are a lot of people in and out of the church who are weighed down by guilt. And guilt, undealt with, will do what? It will destroy you. It will eat you up. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let me just mention this very quickly. When you think about the burdens of guilt, two things here. Number one, the agony of alienation and the shame of separation. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, do you remember a young man by the name of Joseph at the age of 17 who was cast into a pit by his brothers? later sold into the hands of the Ishmaelites and Midianites, ended up in Egypt, didn't he? Ultimately, the Bible says that Joseph rose to prominence, second in command, over Egypt, next to Pharaoh. Joseph had prophesied or foretold of seven years of plenty and seven years of good, seven years of prosperity or wealth. Joseph has risen to command. Times are hard. At the age of 17, he's sold out by his brothers. Twenty long years later, he's finally face to face with his brothers. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And you can just imagine how you would have felt had you been in Joseph's position. And he can hear them as they engage in dialogue with one another. And in about chapter 42, the text speaks of the hurt that they've been bearing for 20 long years. 20 long years. They said, we didn't listen. We refused to hear him when he pleaded with us. And now the situation we're in, as we say sometimes, the rooster has come home to roost. The old saying, what goes around comes around. In their minds, what they did 20 years ago has now come to fruition. And so they've been separated. Their father has been misled. They misled their father. They made him believe that Joseph was dead, killed by a wild animal. So for 20 long years, they've been burying this thing, burying this thing in their hearts. Now that's what happens sometimes when we have problems and we refuse to reconcile them. The agony of alienation and the shame of separation. Should have never happened. Now, I understand God in His providence used this effectively for the good of Israel, didn't He? Providentially, God is working behind the scenes and Joseph rises... So second in command, God's people, well, Joseph and his family members are reunited and able to settle in the land of Goshen. And there they became a mighty nation of people, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, through whom the Messiah came. So God had a re, well, God used that for good. And Joseph will talk about that. And we'll maybe look at a passage in just a moment. But nonetheless, the catalyst for forgiveness now, there's a second thing I want to talk about very quickly. The cost of forgiveness. And here's what I want to ask you tonight. What will it cost you to forgive somebody? 
There's a price attached. What did it cost God to forgive us? Do you remember what Paul said? Romans chapter 5. When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 8. If God spared not His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us all, in order for God to forgive us, it cost Him greatly. It's going to cost us something. If we're going to forgive others, if we're going to be what the Lord wants us to be, then we're going to have to employ some characteristics. So here's what I want you to think about. Number one, the cost of forgiveness. We need to learn to forgive entirely. Do you know what that means? It means fully. Nothing held back. When we forgive, we, can, we forgive entirely, fully. When God forgave you, how much did He forgive you? Did He forgive you 50% of your sin, 75% of your sin, 90%, or 100%? Now I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, because Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 reminds us of what God has done for us in His redemptive plan by way of forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 the Hebrew writer said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. Listen to him. I will remember. Listen, no more. Did you hear that? Their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. So when we forgive, God expects us to forgive entirely, fully. As we would say, payment made. We're not holding back, we're not bearing grudges, but rather we, the intent is to let it go, to bury the hatchet. Now what happens sometimes is we dredge up the past, don't we? How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I forgive you, and then several months will go down, several months will pass, something else will occur, and what do they do? They bring it back up, don't they? And say, you remember six months ago or a year ago or 18 months ago or whatever. Do you remember when you said this, you did this, how you wronged me? No, no, no. That's not forgiving entirely. What would you think if God constantly reminded you of your past faults that have been forgiven? How would you feel about that? Now think about it. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, the writer said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. Two things. Number one, God forgives, doesn't He? He forgives entirely, completely, fully. Not only does God forgive, but in this context, what God is saying is, not only will I forgive, but I will forget. Well, what do I mean by forgetting? I thought God was omniscient. I thought God, I thought God, I thought He knows everything. He does. What he's saying is, when he forgives all of those things in the past, they're gone. They're buried. He's not going to dredge them up. He's not going to bring up 2010 and say, oh, by the way, you remember when you did this in 2010? You remember when you did this in 2013, 2014, 2015? He doesn't work like that. That's not how God operates. No, when God forgives, he forgets. In other words, he no longer holds it against us. Our sins are remitted, removed. So, number one, we've got to learn to forgive entirely. And by the way, that is godlike, isn't it? Listen again to what Paul said. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ 
also forgave you. Paul here is writing to the church and he's saying, look, you need to remember something. God in Christ has done what? He's forgiven you. So number one, you forgive entirely. Number two, you forgive enthusiastically. Now you might be thinking, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Why would I be enthusiastic over forgiving somebody? Well, when God forgave you, do you think there was joy in heaven? Do you think the angels of God rejoiced when you came to Christ? Read Luke 15. In Luke 15, Jesus uses a series of parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Something valuable has been lost and it has been found. When the prodigal son went out into that far country and wasted his substance on riotous living, and that light came off, the Bible says he came to himself, and he said, how many hired servants of my father have bread enough to spare, and I perish here with hunger? Here's what I do. I'll arise, go to my father, say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no, more longer, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. So he begins that track home. And the Bible says his father saw him a great way off and ran and fell on his neck. He had compassion on him, didn't he? He said, this my son was lost and is found. He was dead and is alive. And the Bible says that he called forth for the, he called for the fatted calf. He said, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, for this my son was lost and is found. He was dead and is alive. And the Bible says they began to be merry. When you forgive somebody, you ought to do so with joy. Why? Because that's God-like. When you forgive entirely, it is God-like. It's Christ-like. When you forgive enthusiastically, it is God-like and Christ-like. Think about the joy in heaven when somebody repents, when somebody comes home. It ought to be the same way with us. Number three, we ought to forgive emphatically. And by that I simply mean there should be no misunderstandings when we settle our differences and go our separate ways. It needs to be understood between us that what has happened is in the past. It'll stay in the past. It's not coming back in our relationship. They need to know it, and you need to know it. It needs to be emphatic to the point there are no misunderstandings. There's no gray area, but rather it's over, done. Now, go back and look at Genesis chapter 50 very quickly before our time's gone. It's almost gone. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph and his brothers are now reunited. Their father has died. And so after their father has died, the brothers that sold him out, they're now fearful, aren't they? They're worried. They're thinking, you know what? You know what? Our, our dad, he's out of the way. He's gone. And it is now payday. We're getting ready to pay for what we did. So in verse 17, well, verse 16, they sent messengers to Joseph saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I do not believe that Joseph was harboring a grudge. I don't think he had bitter resentment in his heart. And I believe that's reflected in what he says here and the fact that he wept on this occasion. But the Bible says his brothers also went and fell down before his face and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now look at verse 21. I think Joseph here is saying, look, I want you to understand something, and I want you to understand it with clarity. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Don't you think Joseph wanted them to know, look, what happened is in the past. We're good. We're good between one another. You don't have to worry about our relationship. I mentioned a moment ago that when we reconcile with a brother, Jesus said, we have gained that person. So when we forgive, in essence, we let go. Learning to let go through forgiveness. There are a lot of people in our world today, and there are some people in the church, who are carrying around in their hearts bitterness and anger, resentment, and they haven't let it go. And let me tell you, it will destroy you. It'll destroy you physically. It'll destroy you emotionally. It will destroy you mentally. It will destroy you spiritually. So you need to learn to let it go. My prayer is that when we have problems between one another, we'll deal with it in a biblical way. We'll be a man, we'll be a woman, we'll do what God has said to do. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love.